Welcome to episode 280 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Niemeyer. Greetings, listeners. Our special guest this week is Dr. Carrie Little-Hirsch, an American cultural anthropologist, teaching professor in anthropology at Northeastern University, and producer and host of the podcast, Anthropologist on the Street. Carrie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Today, we'll be discussing human creativity and technology through time from an anthropological perspective. Dirk, why don't you kick us off with uh, some questions that we have for Carrie today? So Carrie, which came first, humans or technology? Definitely the technology by a few million years. Uh, stone tools, if you want to think about those, is one of the original forms of technology of which we have an archaeological record, date back at least to 3.3 million years. And to put that into perspective, modern Homo sapiens have been around for about 200,000 years. Wow, wow. So that goes well beyond even um, Homo erectus and the earlier uh, species under the genus Homo. Uh, back to Australopithecus, which was a very ape-like human ancestor. And it's not surprising because other apes use technology as well. You can watch chimpanzees using sticks to dig down into anthills to gather food. Uh, and there's probably an enormous amount of technology that just didn't survive the years. Uh, so it's very challenging, for example, to find uh, nets and traps that were made out of vines and ropes and soft materials because they would have decayed. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned a lot of different species in there that as a layman, I'm just nodding, but I can't keep track of them all. So what is the relationship between Homo sapiens and the species who came before us or those such as the Neanderthals with whom we competed? Um, and considering this more multifaceted world about and around us, what is the larger anthropological context for humanity? So it's, a, it's such an important question, and it's a really interesting one right now because just about every other month, something new has been discovered in the last 10 or 15 years. Yeah. And so what we thought when I was back in college 20, 25 years ago, what I learned is completely out of date. So with every new discovery, we have to sometimes even create new species or subspecies or families, slot yeah. them in, in different places. Australopithecus overall was the genus that was sort of the halfway point between our ape ancestor and modern humans. And some of the distinguishing features with Australopithecus is that they were upright. So they walked upright as opposed to being the kind of gorilla knuckle dragging that we uh, posture that we associate with great apes. Are they sort of the first species to be walking upright, the Australopithecus? Is that right? Yes. It's it's a genus that includes a lot of species underneath it, but yeah. it is one of the features of it rather early on was this transition from a more ape-like posture to what we would associate with modern upright humans. I see. So are we too Australopithecus? Do we fall under that? So we are part of the genus Homo, which began uh, about two million years ago. And you can, and, and again, it's a little bit hard to find these explicit transitions. We have sort of spotty archaeological records. We find bones and skulls and femurs here and there spread across Africa and parts of Asia. But one of the interesting things is you see this development a little bit after 2 million years ago, maybe 1.8 million years ago, a, a, a new advancement in the type of stone technology that you find. And it somewhat corresponds to the development of bigger brains. So the Homo genus, which includes Homo habilis and Homo erectus and now Homo sapien, 
Um, and Neanderthal is actually even more closely related to us than Homo erectus and Homo habilis because uh, it's a sort of subspecies. So we're Homo sapiens sapiens, they're Homo sapiens Neanderthal. But those, the, the Homo genus is where you start seeing the development of much larger brains and much more advanced and complex stone tool technology. Hmm. And what is sort of the evolution when you say stone tool technology? What were the earliest stone tools as far as our awareness goes and what would represent a more advanced stone tool and why? So this is uh, definitely not my area of study. There are physical anthropologists who could report on this so much better, but <laughs> I can do my my best. Thank you. Uh, which is just that when you look at the older one, to stone tool technology, which started more than 3 million years ago and stretched for more than a million years. Stretched for how many years? More than a million. Okay, about okay. Uh, maybe 1.5 million wow. that we found okay. so far. The, the stone is chipped away in a more rudimentary fashion. When you get to the Ashelian, I believe is, is how you pronounce it, which is about 1.8 million years ago, that's where you might see uh, more deliberately flaked double-edged hatchets and, and arrowheads and, and things along those lines. And again, like, you know, this is, <laughs> this is, I am a cultural anthropologist. I understand. I understand. <laughs> so with that caveat, and I don't mean to push you too far out of your comfort level, but is it almost more design sophistication is what is marking the, the more advanced tools? As I'm trying to interpret mm -hmm. the specifics of what you said, it sounds like it's refinements as opposed to uh, entirely new tool sets? Yes, it is refinements, but it also shows a different approach to the development of technology. And I think that's what's really fascinating mm. to biological and physical anthropologists is it's associated with higher level motor planning and holding in mind multisensory information like working memory. So you have to do many more steps to get to the, the stone tool than you would the more rudimentary design. Um, so there's a great article, if you're interested in anthropology, the Sapiens magazine is something that covers all the different subfields of anthropology. They huh. do cultural, linguistic, biological, and archaeological. And they've got a couple great articles in there about stone tools that, that talk about this history. So what I think I'm hearing then is that as our brains got bigger, as we became more, as our mental potential increased correspondingly, the sophistication of the tools increased. Is that Yes, fair? yes. I think that that is what... Uh, th those, that's the link that physical anthropologists are are making there with that development, that there was something in the structure of the brain that allowed for higher level thinking and strategizing, and that becomes reflected in the types of technology that you begin seeing. Technology since, let's say, uh, again, somebody who's an expert would probably have better chalk lines to draw. But from my perspective, since the 1950s, we've seen an explosion in technology in, in scientific research and discovery. And our brains, as far as I know, have not evolved and changed that much in the last 70 years. So uh, if, if in the early periods of technology, there was a clear relationship between brain evolution and uh, more sophisticated technological development, is there a, a prevailing theory or notion why over the last 70 years, there, there's been an, incre I mean, you know, explosion of technology. More has been done in that period than in, you know, millions of years beforehand. Is there, are there reasons why, from an anthropologist's perspective, that you would, you would think? Well, it's an interesting question because I think that 
one thing that has driven human technology is situation and need. And there is an incredible sophistication of technology around the world, depending on the ecosystem in which you live. Hmm. But there are a few factors that anthropologists might zoom out to sort of assess to answer this question. So one is that when you think about the enormous plasticity of human culture and human design, you see it in art, you see it in language, but you also see it in family structures and you see it in the way that we keep ourselves alive. We gather food, we store food. And for most of our human development, we were hunters and gatherers. Yeah, yeah. And there was, you know, pastoralism developed at some point as well in, in the recent, you know, few 10,000 years ago yeah. uh, or tens of thousands of years ago. But it wasn't until 10,000 years ago that you see large scale agriculture. Right. And it wasn't until less than 200 years ago that you begin seeing a transition to industrial agriculture. Right. So if you have ecological systems shifting that does a lot of different things. One thing it does is it changes what you need to stay alive. Uh, we find that there's quite a bit of commonality uh, depending on the adaptive strategy. There's only so many ways you can fish, for example. Yeah, so yeah. you can look at fisher, fisher, fishing communities around the world and there's a handful of types of technologies that they might implement yeah. to address that. But if you have fishing in the Arctic Circle, there might be modifications that need to be made. The thing with transitioning from hunting and gathering to agriculture, and particularly complex agriculture, is not only did you have to have new tools for gathering food, you also had to have new architectural tools because suddenly you weren't moving around constantly following yes. your prey. Yes. You needed to have long-term technologies like uh, clay, brick making, you know, wood structures, yes. things that would last through time because you had to store your grain. You had to live for long periods of time in one place uh, and weather, weather the weather, as it were. Yeah, yeah. But it also had a huge impact socially. So moving from hunting and gathering and pastoralism, where you have small groups of community members who work in relatively egalitarian ways. Yes to stay alive, everyone is involved in food production in some way or another. Yes. And then you shift to agriculture and suddenly you find people who have nothing to do with food production, like leaders, yes. <laughs> like uh, priests, um, scribes, full-time artists, educators, yes. and all of these, you know, podcasters, right? <laughs> all of these different people who, who don't find their own food. Yeah. Um, they just go to the farmers and they pay for it, right? Or they trade for it in some way or another. So with the Industrial Revolution, you go from what was previously simple or even large-scale agriculture, which its own large-scale groups. And, and I, I forgot to mention also that with that trade specialization, you get incredible social stratification. So if you can control the food, then you can control the people. Yeah, yeah. So you have uh, some people who might have an enormous amount of free time, an enormous amount of wealth, and then everybody else is just working like a dog to keep the society alive. Yeah. Welcome to capitalism, right? Well, and that's the economic system that you know isn't the necessary default, but it happens to be the one that we're partnered with yeah. today, yeah. Uh, which one might argue exacerbates social stratification. You know, whereas you find socialism balances it out, yeah. um, capitalism exacerbates the divides in society. That's right. So with the Industrial Revolution, you do have this burst of technology, 
And perhaps some of that is related to these larger politics, you know, politics of enclosing the land and creating cities. There was a great urbanization several hundred years ago. The way that the land is being used shifts, the way that people start relating to each other shifts. Uh, with capitalism, you now have people not laboring to eat or laboring, you know, for their king, but rather laboring for cash. Yeah. <laughs> So all of these different things shifted to provide this context um, in which, you know, it sort of set the stage for new technologies to develop new ways of life to, to manifest. What are the best theories on technologies that develop independently in different parts of the world around the same time? So if I think of something like paper, um, there, there's, there's paper-like things that developed in ish the same time in the Americas, in China, in Europe, you know, is it aliens, right? I mean, it's not aliens, but it's, it's weird. It's never aliens. It's never aliens, but it's strange, isn't it? Oh, to me as a lady, yes, it's yeah. odd. It's like, wow, how they're not trading, they're not communicating, and yet, and yet. Uh, well, it, you know, that question I think is, is fascinating to me as well. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not sure we have a clear answer that would be satisfying scientifically, you know. Just satisfy me. Don't worry about the scientists. My burden (laughs) of proof is lower. I I think that as we're mapping people's genetic profiles and the profiles of skeletons, people show up in the weirdest places. Hmm. And archaeologically, too, you know, you find references to Allah on Viking belts. So there's ways in which news is traveling and we can't, because it is happening orally, or it's yeah. happening in ways that we're not able to find easily, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we might be missing how that that trade is happening. We, we can't document every movement. That's fair. I can buy that. I mean, how about the Americas, right? The Americas seem geographically isolated. Yeah, but they weren't because you had lots of interaction in the Northeast with uh, the Norse and, and with you know, Viking travelers. I mean, we have the famous story of Leif Erikson, right? Yeah. Uh, but you also have lots of interaction from the South Pacific coming to South America. You have, you know, the Ainu oh, people, interesting. descendants interesting. coming up and around what was probably the Kelp Highway okay. before the Bering Strait even existed. There's okay. a way you can travel in very small boats and live off of fish and kelp. I had no idea of any. This is yeah. this is very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so you can yeah. kind of trace up the line of the Asian coast around down through what is now the North, you know, Pacific Northwest. And so it, the entire story of how the Americas was populated has changed again since I was a kid, right? I learned mm. the traditional Bering Strait story where yeah. it opened up eight to 10,000 years ago and people came in and they slowly moved across the land. But then you find 30,000 year old skeletons in parts of South America and you can't explain that through any other way except exceptional sailing (laughs) or flying, which I don't think we have any evidence of whatsoever. So it has to be the boats. (laughs) There's so much you're talking about that's just new to me and cool. I I love to learn. So I'm actually really, I'm losing my thread on the questions a little bit in my (laughs) just excitement and exuberance over the information. You know, you put your finger on the notion of food and agriculture and the chalk line of, you know, 8,000 BC, the agricultural revolution. I think of the industrial revolution as the industrial revolution your framing of it in agriculture is, is very interesting to me and is a layer, is a nuance um, that I'm going to do something with. But beyond that, are there other anthropological patterns to the progression of technology? Hmm, That's a really tough question. Um, I mean, I think there are always those who kind of look for sort of universal mental approaches to things. 
Uh, and that's, that's, that might be one of the things I was reflecting on when I said that if you have a similar adaptive strategy, so if you're focused on hunting and gathering as your form of keeping yourself alive, the human brain has some core structures where we tackle problems similarly. So it's not surprising that we have, you know, atlans and, and spears and things popping up in various places around the world. Yeah. Because how many ways are there to kill large mammals? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there are lots of different strategies, but we tend to approach problems somewhat similarly. So that's another aspect to the development of something like paper, where if you have complex cultures and, and you, you have a lot of time to kill and a lot of wealth and, you know, you want to record your power and your prowess, right? You can carve it in stone, but maybe there's another way we can get this so that we can transport it outside of the right, city, right. you know? So, so that kind of strategizing, there, there might be some cognitive elements that are structurally similar, but the, the plasticity of, of human uh, choice and behavior and creativity over that is pretty remarkable. Hmm. Um, and that's why you find paper made out of, hundreds of different things. And that's yeah. why you find, you know, technologies in, in thousands of different forms. You know, why was creation and technology seen as the work of the gods? It's a pretty modern notion that humans claim technology as their own. It was, you know, humans were just revealing what mm -hmm. on high had already been done. What, what's the reason for that transference? Well, what's funny is, uh, you know, my research was done with religious communities. And so I would flip it around and say, at what point did we get so cocky? We thought we were the ones who were coming up with this stuff. <laughs> so, you know, if you if you uh, think about the human ego, there have always been these leveling mechanisms in societies that had to work very closely together mm. uh, to prevent people from getting too egotistical. And there's a great article that is used in intro anthropology classes everywhere by Richard Lee, anthropologist Richard Lee, who uh, wrote Christmas in the Kalahari. And he talks about going to live in the Kalahari with the Kung San. And he's in his own little hut with his store of canned foods. And he's studying this hunter-gatherer community and uh, essentially is, is, you know, there by their whim, by yeah. their grace. Yeah. And they uh, have, he decides at the end of the year to throw this big Christmas feast as a thank you to them. And he has a big ox uh, slaughtered and, you know, distribute it to everybody. And they give him so much trouble. It's like a string of Yo Mama jokes about how skinny this ox is and how horrible it tastes. Like, <laughs> and they, and he, he gets so upset. And then he realizes that for the first time, they're treating him like an insider. Yeah, right. Because the whole time he kept himself outside of the community. Yeah. And he goes the inside. The versus the edict. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So he, he, uh, he's for the first time he's being treated like an insider. And if somebody gets too cocky about their kill, they instantly get shut down yeah. because you can't have big egos in small groups. Yeah. So there's that aspect of it that, you know, taking credit for our own creativity might be a relatively new phenomenon. <laughs> I mean, certainly when you get complex agriculture and you get kings and they're claiming that they are the gods and that they are, you know, the, the embodiment of this creativity, yeah. uh, you know, perhaps that's the, the beginning of, of claiming that, you know, you're not just a divine vessel. Clearly pharaohs thought that they were gods themselves, you know, and wanted to yeah. be treated as such. So it's a short step perhaps from, claiming to be a god to just cutting out the middleman and you know. yeah you know there was an evolution where in the classical world only poetry was imbued to human spark right mm -hmm. to our own creation and it was in the renaissance that that i mean 
it was poetry in, in the classical period. In the Middle Ages, it became nobody again. It was back to God. And then in the Renaissance, of course, it exploded and it became ours in a very broad way, which has only, you know, 19th century expanded to science and, and onward. And it's, it's interesting to hear, hear you kind of flip it, flip it back on its head. Well, the, the Enlightenment, um, you know, many, many things came out of the Enlightenment, but it, it's also important to recognize that that's like a very particular cultural and historical phenomenon yeah. that wasn't a universal one. Yeah, yeah. Um, it just seems universal because they then became the colonizers of the rest of the world and yeah. the global, globalizers of the rest of the that's world. That's right. So the ideas of independence and of free will and free thought and equality, all of that came from a particular group of people. And, you know, that... That also corresponded, I think, with the rise of skepticism, um, mm -hmm. challenging the, not just the power of the church, but the teachings of the church as yeah. well. Yeah, that makes sense. What is the relationship between technology and creativity from your perspective? Hmm. <clears throat> I think it's just one of many ways in which humans are unbelievably creative. I mean, I, I tend to see humans as these giant Venn diagrams, okay. <laughs> you know, where you have all of these different aspects of society and culture impacting who you are and how you're behaving. So, you know, there's your economic system, as we've talked about, your ecological system, there's your family, your kinship system. And, you know, whatever you're talking about, gender, the way that ethnicity or religion or politics, how those things are structured for you, you go someplace else or you go to a different period of time and they're entirely different. The range of what it means to be a human is near infinite. I mean, it's it's phenomenal as an anthropologist to be able to look around the world and it just explodes your categories hmm. of what you think, you know, how you think humans are and should be. So, you know, creativity and technology is is in some ways not surprising. Just look at how amazing we are with the way we organize families. You know, we have patrilineages, matrilineages. We have, you know... People living with multiple husbands and people living with multiple wives. We have polyamory. Uh, you know, yeah. we have multiple partners, uh, and, and so there's there's so many ways in which we organize ourselves. It's it's not surprising that technology is just one more way of being creative. Hmm. Yeah, social scientists such as Steven Pinker write about the living conditions for the average human being being better than ever before in human history, and and still continuing to get better. Uh, what's your take on this, and or how can this be explained? from an anthropological perspective? So, <laughs> so I think my first response to that is that the view looks excellent from the top. Mm. I think that that is a statement that can only be made by somebody who is sitting in the wealthiest, safest, longest living uh, part of a wealthy society. Mm -hmm. uh, because anthropologists do tend to look around the world and to look carefully at systems of power, I would say that it is, it is a, a wonderful sort of utopic vision to say that we live in this amazing time with all this amazing technology, but in practicality, the benefits of that aren't trickling down. <laughs> the, the benefits of that type of, uh, of, of success uh -huh. uh, are being captured at the top and they're being preserved at the top. So, it's, um, you know, and, and to put it into perspective, I think to be in the top 1% globally, you have to make $35,000 a year. So even lower middle class families in the United States yeah. are upper class. So, so being surrounded as we are in the U.S., you know, we, we see um, the potential for this technology, but we, there's so much that's hidden from us 
through globalization, whether it's economic disparities or, you know, what we might call human rights violations, uh, ways in which certain groups are being systemically kept down in order to maintain our systems of wealth. Yeah. Um, that means that those technologies, because I, I mean, I'm a huge Star Trek fan, right? The idea yeah. of like technology saving us yeah. really warms the cockles of my heart. Yeah. Um, but but in real life, we're going to have to address the, the, the wealth disparities and the ways in which power um, is not dispersed at, at the bottom or even the middle yeah. uh, in order to, for people to access it. Those are all true and, and good points. Um, acknowledging all of that, mm-hmm. are things better for people? In general? In general, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can say that they, uh, well, how should I put this? They are really, really good for some. Mm-hmm. They are worse for others. Worse than they were in the past. Much worse. Yeah, yeah. And and you can look at that. Uh, you know, I've, I mentioned for most of our evolutionary heritage, we were hunters and gatherers. Yeah. And our biology still reflects that. So, if you uh, think about the people who are the wealthiest, they generally have the best diet. You know, they can eat anything from all over the world because it's just shipped to their grocery store. They can buy it and and prepare it yeah. and not not even worry about it, not even think about it. Yeah. But for people in areas where their culture has been destroyed through colonialism or is, you know, kind of being um, pulled apart through the forces of globalization, the ways in which they fed themselves traditionally are gone. And the foods that are replacing that incredibly varied diet of wild food are really incomplete. So a lot of places in Africa, for example, are what come to mind as I hear you not exclusively that, but that's what I'm thinking about as I... Yeah, I mean, Africa, but also Native American reservations, mm-hmm, um, you know, mm-hmm. Latin American areas, um, mm-hmm. Southeast Asia, um, wherever you had people who were subsisting on wild uh, roots and berries and fish and, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and you know, caribou or whatever, elk, then you switch that to a diet that's mostly wheat or mostly corn, then you, you have that problem. But it's much more of a, than just a problem of diet because you also have people who, through the forces of colonialism and globalization, their autonomy has been stripped. Their ability to make decisions about what's best for their communities was actively taken away. And as part of colonialism, it wasn't enough just to say, okay, now you do what we tell you. It's now you dress the way we tell you. Now you mm-hmm. worship the gods we tell you to worship. Now you speak the languages that we speak. Mm-hmm. Um, now we're going to take your children away from you and we're going to educate them in our style mm-hmm. and then just set them free in the cities to try to survive. Yeah. So if you think about hunters and gatherers, it seems very primitive. Life is very short. Things are very hard. But at the same time, even modern day hunter gatherers have an exceptional diet. They get tons of exercise. They don't have the problems that modern Americans have. They don't have uh, obesity and diabetes and heart disease in the same numbers. And maybe they don't live as long, but if they can make it to 15 or 20 years of age, they have an excellent chance of making it past 40. Mm -hmm. And compare that with peasant farmers in, you know, simple agricultural states or in impoverished areas. And their, their health and their life and their mental health is going to be a lot better. So what's the net out? Is the world better or worse? Yes. <laughs> I mean, again, I think we're, we always go to the local. We always go okay, to, okay. it depends on where you're asking. Depends on where you're asking. Yeah. Depends on what you're looking at. And if you were averaging it, is there? You know, for every, for every gain we've made, we've created a new problem. Hmm. 
Um, global warming clearly wasn't an issue when we were hunter gatherers and pastoralists, but we've cured smallpox, so there, you know, we've annihilated smallpox. Yeah. <laughs> That's a win. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah it, and one thing required the other, right? <laughs> we we don't eliminate smallpox without many of the underlying things that have resulted in global warming. Yeah. Right. There's this weird relationship between the gains and the losses. It is. And, and smallpox may not have been the plague it would have been if we hadn't developed cities and mm-hmm. that had poor mm-hmm. sanitation, you yeah. know, as opposed to constantly moving in small groups. So I think that there's I, I always want to be careful of the, the hubris that it gets embedded in the statements like we have it so good now. Yeah. Because we we do, I mean, without question, we have some remarkable elements to our society, but we've caused so many problems for ourselves mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that we're constantly trying to fix, whether with new medications or, um, you know, shifting, people eating paleo diets, right? <laughs> Talk about going back to your roots. Yeah. Um, you know, so we're, we have a lot of environmental and health consequences that come from our choices, or, or the, not choices, but the way that our societies have developed and not all societies have the same problems and they don't have all the same gains. So it would be really useful to kind of look around and see where these problems come from and, and what other solutions might be. You know, from your anthropological perspective, what is your take on the future, where we're headed just as the way we're going? And additionally, how would you change things to put us on what you would consider um, sort of an ideal trajectory for humanity? Well, you know, we tend to, as anthropologists, be a little bit allergic to grand sweeping narratives. Mm-hmm. Um, we mostly like taking pot shots at those. So it's hard to have a, a strong sense of what the future holds. I think we can see trends and we can see not just how things are moving, but what kinds of resistances are growing and what kinds of creative ways people are taking technologies and running with them. So I don't really have an answer for where we're going, but I would hope that we could take more of an anthropological perspective because I think when we get too insular in our own lives, we tend to extrapolate from there and think that our problems are universal problems. Our ways of thinking about things and doing things are universal ways. And they're simply not. There's nothing acultural about us. There's nothing acultural about science. So I would love to see more anthropology at every level in terms of learning from one another. And really, you know, one of the the best quotes I heard about understanding what anthropology does is it's like trying to make the fish see the water. So you're trying to see all of these institutions and values and ideational systems and all of these meanings that yeah. we swim around in, but yeah. we don't perceive. Yeah. So if you can stop and do that, not only would you maybe come up with some really interesting solutions to problems, but you might find that the way that other people do things has value too. Yeah. That's that's cool. Are are there any technologies or or advances that are are here or that are coming that you're aware of that you're excited about as an anthropologist to to make people's lives better? Um, there are a lot in a lot of different realms. I mean, I'm pretty keen on the internet. I think that's a neat thing. It has, like every technology, it has the ability to to, you know, destroy and create, right? Yeah. So you have hate groups and, and all sorts of horrible things happening on the internet, but it also can connect people in new ways. It allows us to communicate with each other and learn across vast distances, talk to people we would never otherwise interact with. I mean, I think that's pretty phenomenal. That's 
the ultimate anthropology is being able to increase communication around the world. Now, getting people to understand one another is an entirely different ball of wax. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, we have the technology, but again, it's not in a vacuum. So we need we need to follow up with some interest, some curiosity, and some empathy and understanding. Yeah. But I think with every with with internet, with faster communication, we also have the ability to share problems and potential technologies. Um, and you know, we we talked very briefly in my intro anthropology class about where we're going to go next in terms of our human ecology. You know, we've we've gotten industrialism, and that's been messy, right? Yes. Uh, and problematic in terms of eating too many processed foods and and kind of destroying our ecosystem to some extent. And yet now you have IKEA offering open source plans to make this garden that's basically a sphere that's like a hydroponic garden. And you can download these plants and make it in your village. And you can feed your entire village using this one little technological plan. And I'm just like fascinated by that. You know, the keys to our destruction and our salvation are in the same place. Yeah. That's a great insight. Carrie, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great conversation. Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we are mentioning here in real time. Just head over to thedigitallife.com. That's just one L in the digital life. And go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everyone. So it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. You can find The Digital Life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play. And if you'd like to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by GoInvo, a studio designing the future of healthcare and emerging technologies which you can check out at goinvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Dirk? You can follow me on Twitter at dneemeyer. That's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. And thanks so much for listening. Carrie, how about you? You can find me on anthropologistonthestreet.com or through my blog, relevanth.com. I'm also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Find me and follow along. Excellent. We'll be sure to do that. So that's it for episode 280 of The Digital Life. For Dirk Nehemiah, I'm John Follett, and we'll see you next time. 